Welcome to episode 5 of the Heart Podcast, everyone. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on anti-racist teaching at community colleges. I'm particularly excited about today's episode because we'll be bringing together colleagues that mean the world to me because of the valuable work we've done together both in Arizona and in Connecticut. Join us as we take a journey down memory lane and hear valuable narratives from our guests as to what guides their work and what provides their sense of purpose in the academy. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Thank you, Omar. I'm really excited about this episode also. And I'm so thrilled that you and our guests today have had the opportunity to work together in different capacities. One of our guests today, Dr. Kenny Nienhauser, is an assistant professor in the NEAC School of Education at the University of Connecticut. His research focuses on how educational institutional agents grapple with contemporary issues in their daily practice and how their practices in turn shape the high school to college transition of minoritized students. Also with us is Dr. Liz Cantu. She is a communication residential faculty member at Estrella Mountain Community College in Arizona. Her research focuses on first-generation college students' experiences, educational access, and equity of marginalized students in higher education. We also have with us is Dr. Luis Andrea Brownlee, who works in academic advisement at Estrella Mountain Community College and is also an instructor at Arizona State University. He is an educator who has taught in K-12 schools, community college, and a university for over a decade. His passion lies in educating teachers in the art of meeting the holistic needs of students of color. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you all for joining us and being a part of this podcast episode. Today's episode focuses on anti-racist teaching in community colleges, but before we dig into how that shows up in the classroom, uh, let's get a bit situated about who uh, community college students really are. Um, and on that note, Kenny, given your research on community colleges, um, what's your take about who community colleges serve and what needs to be kept in mind by faculty who teach at community colleges? Yeah, thanks so much, Omar. Um, so I'd like to begin by sharing a little bit of a backdrop of community colleges as well as its students. And then also I'd like to end by sharing some strengths that our community colleges have. Uh, so it's, it's well known that community colleges are a really important sector of the U.S. higher education uh, landscape. However, it's often one that's forgotten, one that's under-researched, underfunded, and really uh, deserves our attention that we give the prominence that community colleges deserve. There are about 1,500 degree-granting community uh, colleges in the U.S., which are about one-third of the degree-granting uh, institutions in the U.S. In 2018, uh, the National Center for Education Statistics estimated there are about 5.6 million students who are enrolled in two-year institutions. That's about 2 million uh, who are attending full-time and 3.6 million who are attending part-time. We'll talk about that in just a little second. Um, the Community College Research Center at Teachers College Columbia University estimates that about 44% of all undergraduate students in the 2017-2018 academic year were enrolled in uh, community college. However, the, the enrollment uh, trends in community colleges really are quite sporadic. So since uh, 2000, uh, between the period of 2010 and 2017, we've actually seen a drop of about 23% of, of uh, students who are enrolled in community colleges. Now, in terms of the age, uh, there are a lot of students, uh, you know, about 37% of community colleges, of community college students who are age 30 or older. Um, and the system or the community college sector uh, graduates about 1 million uh, students each year. Now, I mentioned and sort of foreshadowed this a little bit, but uh, community colleges enroll a higher uh, percentage of students who are racial, ethnically minoritized, right? Lower income, 
as well as first-gen attendees, right? And these are some of the strengths that I'll talk about in a little bit having to do with community colleges, right? So about 27% uh, um, of Hispanic students are enrolled in community colleges, 13 Black, 6% Asian Pacific Islander, Native American 1%, and multiracial students comprise about 4% of community college enrollments. Right, so very higher percentages of racially ethnically minoritized students are enrolled at community colleges. 55% of Hispanic undergraduates, 45% Asian undergraduates, and 44% of Black undergraduates are undergraduate students are enrolled in the community college sector. Just a little bit more data and information to frame our, our conversation uh, before I wrap up to talk about the strengths of community colleges. Um, but in terms of low income, right, close to 70% of community college students in 18, 19 academic year, we're coming from households that are less than $50,000. And in terms of first-gen college students, right, in 15, 16, about 64% of students uh, are first-gen students who are attending community colleges. And that's defined as parents who do not hold a bachelor's degree. So I share these sort of demographic uh, figures, because I think it's really important to think about them. So we get a composition or sort of a picture of what the community college uh, landscape looks like and its importance in thinking around anti-racist and intersectional pedagogical practices that are occurring in the community college sector. Now, I think it's important, while I, I, I love that our conversation is going to focus in the classroom, I also want to plant a seed. I think it's important for us to think about practices that are occurring outside of the classroom that faculty can also foster and think about about how they can also be better supporting anti-racist, not just pedagogical practices, but also their actions and how they're better supporting um, our students in community colleges. Now, let me talk about the strengths, and I think there are many, many strengths that community colleges have. I'm not going to have the opportunity to shed light on all of them, but I thought it'd be important to just talk about a couple that I hope will help uh, inform our conversation, our rich conversation today. So we often talk about community colleges as being people's college, right, as a gateway for opportunities around educational opportunities for uh, many communities though some scholars have critiqued that it truly is not really sort of open access as it purports to be in many instances. Think of restrictive uh, remedial policies, transfer policies, and other sort of accountability policies that do not really sort of afford greater access. However, we do know, right, that community colleges do have an open access mission, right? So many institutions are just allowing for GEDs or high school graduation for entry into most programs, there are some exceptions, but in many programs in the community college sector. <clears throat> community colleges are the most affordable post-secondary education option as well. It's about a third cheaper than the cost of public four-year institution tuition. So it absolutely is a way that affords greater access. It's also an institution type that is more geographically accessible. Right, for our rural communities, as well as our Native American populations, right, if we're thinking about TCUs, right? So it's really important that we also think about uh, geographic uh, accessibility as well. In addition to thinking around access, uh, community colleges are well situated to be better address the academic needs of learners that it's serving. They normally have friendlier policies and practices to students who enroll part-time to racial, ethnically diverse students, right? And often have uh, flexible, uh, it's considered to be the most flexible higher education sector to meet the needs of the community as well as the workforce development needs. I could go on and on talking about more strengths of, of community colleges, but I'll just pause and sort of leave it there. And, and I hope that this has been helpful to frame the conversation uh, around uh, the conversation we'll be having today. Kenny, thank you for that context because it shows how um, varied the demographics are of students who are attending community colleges and the necessity for people who work at community colleges to have a framework of agility, you know, to be able to really 
change and and meet the needs of, of a distinct population. So I really appreciate that context. I'm curious, Liz and, and Lewis, um, given your experience teaching at the community college, can you share a bit more about how is your teaching informed by the students you serve and teach? Thank you so much. So I would actually say um, kind of when when Kenny was giving some of the really great statistics about community colleges and who they serve, I wanted to share that the college that I work at, which is Australia Mountain Community College in Avondale, Arizona, actually has 67% of our student population is first generation. Um, and within the system that we we work in, which is Maricopa uh, Community College District, um, half of the students that attend, and we've got about 200,000 total that attend our community college system, where we are one of the largest in the, the nation, um, about half of them are first generation students. And as Kenny mentioned, right, first generation students often come from lower, lower socioeconomic status, um, uh, many times uh, different immigration statuses as well. Um, there is also the racial ethnic um, sort of diversity. And so actually that is one of the reasons why I feel like community colleges are such an important intervention point and such an important um, accessible point to education for any student um, or community member that is interested in um, really attaining a higher education degree. Um, the reason why I said community member is because um, I used to work at Arizona State University and um, I had the privilege of working with the community college system um, and to do a specific program. And in the program, right, uh, what was really interesting about that program was that the majority of people, you know, that were attending the program that we were offering were above 30 years old. And I remember that for the funders um, for this project, when they were thinking about the grant that we had, they thought it was gonna be 16 year olds, 18 year olds, right? Students that were following that traditional path. And what was really fascinating was that um, it was actually not. It was a lot of people who were coming back to college to reskill, retool, um, you know, and to hear the stories of the individuals that were participating in this program really kind of, I think for me, was like, a, I need to be working in the community colleges, right? Because this is the population that I really want to serve. One, I should say, I, I started off in the community college system um, because again, uh, for the accessibility that it had for my family. And so um, I, it was just kind of this really interesting relevation. And, and it was because of that, that I decided to sort of move to the community college system from the university system. And um, there's so much more I can say about how it informs, but I, I, I think uh, I wanted to provide the context as to how and why I'm where I am at, I'm at at the moment in my career. Um, I, I think it's just really important because community college systems often are that important intervention for a lot of communities that are historically underserved, underrepresented in higher education. We need to do a service to these students to sort of one, um, help them help them feel like they belong within higher education, right? To how do we get them uh, the skills and the knowledge and the credentials that they need in order to get a career or get an um, a job opportunity that will help them um, advance uh, not just um, in terms of their personal professional goals, but also in terms of their financial stability, right? Um, the one thing I will share, and then I will give it over to my colleague Lewis here, is um, I think you hear from all, all a lot of students that the reason why they are in college is not just for themselves. They're in colleges to help their their family. They're in colleges to advance um, for opportunities that their parents or their family members haven't had. And I think that that again is is one of the reasons why I am so committed to helping students feel like they belong and to help students. Um, persist 
because it is not just about them. It, it's kind of this collective sort of, I'm in college for my people, my community, mi gente. Um, and that's where I feel then I have a responsibility to, like, the student is not just a student in my class. It is a family. It is a community behind them. And so I really feel that sense of commitment to really wanting to help them uh, succeed. That's really powerful, Liz. And I know, um, Louis, I'm curious to hear your your perspective here. Um, but just in response to what I'm hearing, Liz, I feel like what you said was really powerful. It kind of like struck my heart a bit because it's about community um, uplift. It seems to me that going to a community college for many students, particularly the ones that you're speaking about, and also maybe from your own personal experience, it sounds like you, you know you started at the community college as well. That it's not just an access point into higher education, but it is a commitment to uplift one's own family and community. So it's like the whole community is going to college when um, uh, community college students are pursuing their education, and that's really powerful. So thank you for for putting that out there, Louis. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I think we're, we're going on a, a great path because Kenny gives this, right, this demographic, right, painting of the student populations that are there. And then Liz kind of does a great job of highlighting the why, right, why students are going to school. And I think a lot of times that is absent from, from the data. But I, I think and on top of that, now we know the demographics and that we know that 67% of students in Maricopa are first generation. I think the, the next question should be is, who's gonna be the nurturer of these students, right? That's the question. And so for me, it's always focused on, I used to just to be focused on teacher education preparation, right? And so to not look at diversity as a negative thing, but more as a positive, and I found it interesting that you look at anthropology or archaeology or botanists, they look at diversity as a positive, right? When um, you have a multiplicity of insects and plants and you have this ecosystem. And so that's what we're looking at is this ecosystem. How can we keep this ecosystem to where it's producing, you know, great results? And to me, I used to just be focused on, you know, anti-racist training with, with, with teachers, at our, at our local universities, um, you know, people do implicit bias uh, courses, uh, discriminatory practices that need to be examined and things of that nature. But also being in student affairs, I realized that a lot of that um, anti-blackness, right? Or anti-diversity, those narratives are there as well. And so those, those injuries can happen there before they even show up in Dr. Cantu's class. Right. And now she's working, you know, trying to get the student caught up because they have been injured. And so to me, if we're going to be doing this anti-racist teaching, student and academic affairs have to have to be there. And that we have to understand is that we live in a, a very patriarchal white supremacist society. And so in the in the, in the uh, viewpoint of France Fanon, um, the uh, the black psychologist, the racist psychologist that looked at racism through a psychological impact is that what he says is that when these type of injustices are so prevalent, it becomes the norm. And we don't, be, we don't see these injuries when we go, when, it's, I found it amazing when I go to graduation and I see all these future teachers go across the stage, I'm concerned because are they gonna help our students or hurt our students, right? That's what my concern is. So we, we gotta look at the system in totality and understand is, is this institution a form of social reproduction is it a form of cultural reproduction, or are we are we are, are we increasing the level of of, of as well? Um, Paolo Freire talks about the pedagogy of the oppressed. Are we lifting them to be able to not just earn a degree or earn a, earn a certification, but to also be critically thinking to change the way our society is at large? And so, to to have anti-racist um, you know teaching happens at the university but also happens in students' fairs as well, collectively. Because if not, what we see is that these things are, they're producing a form of Jim Crow. They're just, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, is student population diverse, but your faculty population is not diverse. Your administration population is not diverse, right? 
And so um, I think those are things we have to examine is like what is actually being taught. So we have these students come in as Kenny show very diverse populations. As uh, Dr. Cantu shows, you know, first generation college students. Now the question should be is who's putting this knowledge in their heads. Right? Because, you know, as a, as a, as a professor, your classroom is your domain. And a lot of times we hide behind this, this narrative of um, academic freedom. And it's, it can be an injury sometimes to, to students if you don't understand students um, and their why, which is very important, right? And so, oh, I don't see color. That's an injury. You need to see color. You need to see race. You need to see ethnicity. And so I think the biggest challenge is trying, especially at the community college level, even higher education, is trying to get faculty members to look at themselves and say, yeah, you know, you, you do a decent job, but you can do things better. And it's going to take a, um, a, a movement such as when Michael Jackson talks about man in the mirror, you have to look in the mirror to really, to, are you really lifting students up to where they're at? And so that's the way I look at it is from the time that outreach, when Omar did outreach to the time we get them to their ac academic goals, we got to look at what is the level of information that's being displayed to the student, is it going to get them to where they need to be or get them off track? Louis, that's that's really interesting because what you're making me think about is that anti-racist teaching at the community college in particular, given all that you have all shared so far about the unique, you know, um, dynamics that make up the community college, um, it requires anti-racist teaching at the community college to be more of a institutional ethos. So in other words, anti-racist teaching is something that happens in and outside of the classroom at the community college. It has to happen in through the programming. It has to happen in the classroom and it even has to happen in the way the community college connect with and draw um, build relationships with the community itself. So really it's a, a more comprehensive view of the way in which anti-racist uh, teaching maybe gets employed or can be employed at a community college and the community college um, unique context is almost um, perfect for that institutional ethos approach to be enacted. You also made me think of a second thing, which I was just referring to in a presentation yesterday. Um, you said, Sometimes faculty hide behind this academic freedom um, point. And I always thought about acad academic freedom as a positive thing and be able to teach freely without worry that you could lose your job, you know, about giving, you know, turn perspectives in the classroom. But Dr. Anna Newman actually has an article about why subject matter matters. And in that, she writes about students', students freedom to learn. So when we think about freedom in the university, I feel like it has been positioned for like, what's the freedom that faculty have? But you, what you just said made me think about what is the institutional responsibility towards the freedom for students to learn without being harmed. And I appreciate what you shared. And I'm curious where anybody else maybe wants to comment has been put at the table here. Um, so I open the conversation to anybody else who wants to react or comment. So um, some of the things that I do uh, just, I, I know that we, I think wanted to talk a little bit about intersectionality um, today. And, uh, you know, I think it's really important, at least for me, um, you know, I teach communication courses. Uh, the, my favorite class to teach is intercultural communication because it really asks students to, um, you know, really kind of consider, you know, sort of uh, how it is that they are, they don't exist in a vacuum. They're a part of communities. They're a part of diverse communities, um, but that there are agents for change within those communities as well. And so sometimes we, you know, oftentimes I'll do activities about sort of intersectionality to, to really sort of not only show students how they are complex individuals, but also like where they have perhaps entry points to, to be, to have agency um, within their community. So I'll give you an example with me. Um, you know, I tell my students that I feel as a first generation daughter of two Mexican immigrants, right? Um, my 
ability to get a PhD, the support that my family gave me, all of that, you know, the support of a great mentor and the support of my community has helped me get to this point. And so as I have continued on with my degree and as I've continued to advance in my career in the US, I almost feel sometimes that that has taken me away from my family's roots and has taken me away from even like where my family lives, right? Like, um, and so in many ways, people see what I have a lot as privilege, right? And maybe it's the privilege that I have in terms of uh, a, a Latinx woman who is in higher education, because I know I'm holding this, you know, I, I have a, a very big spot to fill in terms of the fact that in academia, we need to continue to diversify kind of like the way um, colleague Lewis here said. At the same time, right, like I sometimes I feel like all of that power and privilege that it's giving me in the United States and that it's giving me, you know, maybe um, in, in academia, it's kind of also kind of taking something away in terms of my family, right? And so I struggle with that. And 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 that's something that I, and those are the types of conversations I like to have with my students, right? It's like, how do you, how do you find, how do you balance between those kind of dialectical tensions that, that exist, uh, you know, and the complexity that happens within the social systems that we're a part of? You know, and then again, of course, I, I always say, right, but my entry point going back to intersectionality is, well, if I have this power and privilege, then it's my even more responsibility to advocate for students so that they, you know, continue. To be. So it's almost like this idea that that it's not it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, but I, I like for students to sort of feel those tensions and to, you know, sometimes process those tensions with me, um, because I think that that just, again, shows um, that yes, we are a part of these systems and these systems have a historical context, but maybe that through that exploration where we can also find entry points to sort of feel, figure out how we can make um, smaller interventions and smaller, um, you know, uh, opportunities for systemic change within like these little micro sort of moments, right? Um, so sometimes, uh, I, you know, Dr. Brownlee and I, we work a lot on diversity, equity, and inclusion work at our college. And, and, you know, it's daunting, right? To think like higher education, such a privileged um, institution, what is our locus of control and how can we maybe change some of the things, you know, like we say, the interventions within our classroom, the, the activities within our classroom, the the dialogue within our classroom that really helps kind of foster that growth mindset in students, but also that helps students kind of be empowered to say, you know what, I can actually change something about my, you know, my condition or I can actually go protest. And I understand now why protesting and, and or civil disobedience is such an important thing for me to you know, embark in. So I'm kind of all over the place here, but I, I guess I'm trying to myself process all of this as I'm talking, right? Is to, to sort of say the intersectionality, what's powerful about it is it helps us examine ourselves, but at the same time, what I always think is find entry points into how we leverage our position within the systems that we're a part of. When, she, when Liz was talking, it just, um, when she mentioned the term intersectionality, I think typically when we use that term, we, we think about us and our intersectionalities with our identities, but I think we kind of can also, you know, transmute that to the process of this thing we call education. So the intersectionality between the community college, the community, the uh, businesses, at, you know, at hand. And so to me, because um, I like how Liz keeps talking about like my my privilege, I have to do something with my privilege. I think one of the disservices that we do to students is we do teach in this vacuum, right? Where it's like uh, you come into the class and I'm teaching you how to do a widget, but I'm not really telling you that as a woman of color, when you apply for this job, it's five times more likely that a white man will get this job. Right, we're not being honest about that. So that's intersectionality also with the anti-racism. So it's not just about using our culturally relevant education. That is very important. I, I'm a big fan of that. But it's also letting them know, you know, when you graduate from here, 
you're going to run into some issues out there, right? And that's one of my privileges. That's one of the reasons I kind of got into teaching because I'd seen in the workplace as an engineer, like, man, this is, this is wrong. You know, there's a lot of tokenism and, and glass ceilings that were there and, and stereotypes I tried to overcome. And so when I advise students and I teach students, I let them know your culture is very important, it's valuable. However, when you walk off this campus, you know, and I just use you as an example, I'm always, I don't like the police. I just be honest, I'm always in constant fear. I get high levels of anxiety when I see them. But I know even though I have a doctorate, you know, I'm still just a, um, as James Baldwin says, I like how he puts like, uh, the Negro problem is your problem because I'm not a Negro, right? The Negro is a figment of your imagination. I'm not that. But however, you can materialize punishment and oppression towards me based on your imagination. So I'm definitely aware of that. And so I agree with Liz that when we talk to students, we have to communicate those ideas. But at the same time, we got to prepare them for life like we do our own children. Right? Like you're going to ride a bicycle, you're going to fall, you're going to crash, you're going to skin your knee, but that's not the end of the world. And I, I feel like at the community college, we have a better chance of doing that than maybe at the university. But a lot of times the focus is on research than building the lives of students. And that's what I enjoyed when I was at Clayton State uh, College and University, my first got into school, was that I had academic, it was really my academic advisors, not faculty, that kept me in school. They're the ones that tell me, you can do it, stay in it. Hey, if you don't get this degree, you know how hard it is for a black man in the society without a degree? Like, those are the conversations we had, right? And the data shows if a black man has a degree, he's less likely to go to prison. He's less likely to go to jail. Not to say he won't, but he's less likely to. And so it was almost like these are a form of deterrence against white supremacy, right? Against patriarchal su supremacy, against uh, homophobia, against these different types of things that are out there in society. So when I look at intersectionality, I don't really like limit it to people, which it is people, as Kimberly Crenshaw points out. But I think also it's the intersectionality as Liz is talking about like, okay, I've seen the system, right? I've talked to the whiz. <laughs> I pull back the curtain, he's not real. Let me tell you what's gonna go on outside of this campus. And, and we're gonna do some form of anti-oppression in, in a you know variation so yeah Lewis you know your comments made me think about the higher education trajectory of students and how community colleges can be a very nurturing environment but we can also harm students as they enter the system and oftentimes before they even set foot on a college campus and you know it made me uh, think back to something that one of my mentors shared with me some time ago who's also an educator um, and she mentioned how she's in disbelief with how often educators and administrators forget that they once didn't know. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we all once didn't know how to complete a college application. We all once didn't know how to apply for FAFSA, how to send a proper email and, and countless other things. And it just made me think of how we can nurture students before, during and after their college trajectory, as you so eloquently mentioned, Lewis. I think it's super valuable to be straight up with students, with their parents, and, and just the family unit overall by not sharing valuable information with them or essentially doing the family a disservice. And Lewis, you interestingly mentioned a word, uh, which is injuries, and it reminded me of our concept of remedial coursework. And, you know, in my time working in education, I've come to envision remedial coursework as a chronic injury that should have been addressed years ago. And unfortunately, in those situations, institutions put the heavy burden to catch up both in terms of time and money on the student who already has so many responsibilities. And so I just want to uplift your choice in using the word injuries because I think many students, specifically students of color, are suffering at institutions at the moment and more should definitely be done to address the humanity of the situation. And um, I'd like to pass it back to Milagros. At this point, wondering uh, Liz and Lewis, what is one piece of advice you would provide our audience on enacting anti-racist teaching in community colleges with a focus on intersectionality, kind of going you know, from the conversation we're having on intersectionality 
And, and Kenny, as we wrap up too, I'm wondering if you could join that kind of last bit of the conversation, just thinking about maybe if you can come in at the end after Liz and, and Lewis, just to take us back to where we started and maybe help us make a connection. Like how can, um, what connections are there between what we're talking about in terms of this anti-racist teaching community colleges and how can we make it relevant for policy um, in terms of community colleges? So I'd love to turn it back to Lewis and, and, and Liz and get your perspective, what advice you might offer. Just trying to give you more time. I feel like I have <laughs> taken a lot of time. You know, um, so I think, uh, I think that many times people, um, there's a perception in our society that like um, community colleges or even training schools are not valuable. Um, or therefore the, the students that weren't able to get into college. I, I definitely think that as a society and as a nation, we need to um, really reframe and really understand that um, if anything, community colleges are a very valuable um, uh, intervention or, or educational um, institution within our society. Um, you know, in Arizona, we have, uh, and I don't know the full history uh, about it, but I know our um, community college system is, uh, even though it does have some state money um, attached to the funding, it's very little. Um, and there's a historical um, background that I don't know enough about, but I definitely feel that there needs to be perhaps more investment um, within community colleges. Um, and not just investment in terms of uh, the, um, in terms of, you know, like the, I think there needs to be more investment also in the services that we provide, um, is what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, I think that many times what I have heard since going from the university over to the college system is, oh, well, colleges have such like lean budgets. And because of that, we can only do this. Um, and I feel that, you know, and, and so sometimes when I bring in examples from what I see other four-year institutions doing or what other um, universities are doing, people feel like it's not possible to do at our college. Like the imagination just, I guess, isn't there. Because I kind of feel sometimes like it is like resources are one thing, right? But as as we kind of mentioned, how do we leverage community partnerships, right? Um, how do we um, perhaps, uh, you know, think creatively about some of the ways that we can provide better wraparound support services for students? Um, and then I think also kind of going a little bit into what Kenny mentioned about under-researched. I think because maybe we don't fully understand a lot of these nuances of the community college system compared to the university, maybe maybe that's why there's sort of um, a lack of understanding um, about not only the importance of community colleges within our higher education landscape, um, also though the opportunities, right? Like if we do research, then we can have better opportunities to figure out how to solve problems. Um, you know, and maybe even how to, again, have more partnerships that can help sometimes um, uh, meet the needs of students or the needs of communities in a way that we haven't even thought yet. Um, I really feel that COVID has helped us be creative and helped us, you know, kind of reimagine education. I hope that that doesn't stop uh, even after we have settled into our life post the pandemic because I think that we need to continue having those, those discussions because, um, and, and I haven't had a chance to talk about entrepreneurial mindset because I'm very big into that within my students is this idea of, I want you to think um, and be adaptable and be flexible, right? Because that is the 21st century for us. Our technology is gonna continue to change. Um, our knowledge is gonna continue to change. Maybe some of the systemic stuff is still constant, but if we have more innovative thought and a, a, an ability to reimagine, we cannot continue to accept that the institutions that we're a part of, right, 
are not able to be changed, right? And then again, that's why I sort of feel like that whole change agency is important for, for students. Um, the idea is that we're trying to transform, right, not just the student, but the social, the society, the community. So for, for me, um, <clears throat> I think we, we constantly look over a very, very important resource, and that is the people who, who actually, these first, generation stu first generational students that have now gotten degrees and who are now employees of the community college. I think that is a resource we need to tap into because they can tell you how to navigate and, and deal with these students. So I think a lot of times what we do, and I am not a fan of this at all, I, I, I'm totally against this. I don't like when we go hire these big name people, you pay them twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 to give a speech and then you never see them again. Like I am, I'm not, I'm, I think that's a trend that I don't wanna participate in. I think it's better if you're gonna do that to partner with the people who have been through the system and come up with new ideas as Liz talking about being imaginative, think of it. So um, I was recently, well, not recently, a couple of months ago, I was being interviewed um, about what is the solution to homelessness? And I told them, well, go talk to homeless people. Like they're gonna tell you <laughs> how they end up where they are. Everybody's not homeless because they're lazy. It's it's a lot of cornucopia of reasons. So if Liz is a first generation of college student, I'm a first generation college student. And you know, we'll say 40% of your faculty and staff are college students and use them as resources because they can give you the knowledge that you need to make sure that you reach these students good, bad, or indifferent. We're the ones that went through the system, right? We're the ones with the tenacity. We're the ones with um, with the testimonies, as me and Liz are constantly trying to push on our camp campuses, these counter narratives are sharing stories, not for the sake of sharing stories, but this is um, rich qualitative data, right? And so, like, the reason I went to college is not the same reason that Liz went to college, but I can tell you our testimonies would be very similar. I literally went to college because I didn't want to go to jail, right? I was so scared in my community because uh, George Bush and Clinton had a war on drugs and a war on crime, which was a war on black poor people. And when I learned about the Pell Grant, I ran to the university and went to college. That's why I went to school. However, I knew that going into a classroom that these teachers didn't care about me. How did I know that? Because they didn't care about me in high school. So why would they care about me at the community college? And university class is so big, I don't think they have the bandwidth to even kind of connect. And so, I think, and, and so right now, I know Liz is doing a, a wonderful study where she's going to be interviewing students, am I correct, through Title V? And I'm going to, I'm partnering my study with her study where I'm interviewing all of the Black employees um, and asking them what are some qualities that student affairs should possess and academic affairs should possess to better serve students, right? And so it's going to be about 20 participants. I'm working with IRB right now to get that data. But I think we overlook the people who've come through the pipeline. Like, I would love to talk to Omar and say, man, how did you make it? You know, and get 20 Omars together and come up with a study and say, these are five qualities, compassionate, loving, caring, or whatever. And then how do we get that? I think a lot of time our hubris and our egos get in the way of who, are, who important we are versus meeting the student's needs. Right? And so if you're a first generation of college student, you're just trying to survive that first year. You're just trying to make it. And so, but you still have questions in your head. And so to have mentors is very important. You know, I didn't have a mentor when I was in college, but I would have, I would have benefited from that. The closest thing I had to a mentor was my academic advisor and she was amazing. And so I think, and I cut this short because I still had like a minute and a half left, but I cut it short. But I think human beings, if your budget is tight, then you should be leaning way more on your human resources, right? Not human resources department, but the employees of the campus to come up with solutions. You have creative people on your campus that can give you answers versus always looking outside at other people to come and solve something that you really have the, the, the skill set to do on your own campus. You have people with doctorate degrees, multiple doctorate degrees, multiple master's degrees, but instead you look outside. I don't, under, I don't understand it. You have people right here that can tell you, this is what we need. Right, but I think it's just all just come down to just valuing people as as um, as contributors to solve the problem. And I, I think we overlooked that. So 
So, you know, I'm loving uh, Lewis and, and Liz, how you're, how you're um, encouraging us to think at a more macro level uh, and, and thinking about, uh, about issues from an intersectional perspective and how there are social systems that are absolutely impacting what things are looking like um, sort of on the ground in community colleges and, and in, the, in the classroom itself. And, and I'd like for us to think a little bit about public policies, right? And how that uh, is evidenced uh, around anti-racism towards the, the community college students uh, and, and the staff members that work there, right? When we talk about community colleges, it's, I think it's important that we talk about the, the financial hardships that community colleges face around how they're disproportionately funded by the state governments and by local governments. Uh, and how those contributions should be larger. So for looking at what that looks like in terms of inequities, it's it's over $8,000 that community colleges get less as compared to four-year institutions, right? I don't want to pin four-year institutions against two-year institutions. I don't, right? But I think it's important that we do go ahead and, and call out those inequities. In Connecticut, that gap is $14,000. Right in Arizona, where you are, Liz, that's nine thousand, close to nine thousand dollars to the gap. Right, so it's really important that we talk about the inequities that exist in, in relation to funding. Uh, that is really, really important uh, that we go ahead and highlight. Now, why does that matter? Right, because we can't have more full-time faculty who are teaching in community colleges. Right, that are really important to be able to help uh, support students in the ways that we've been describing and talking about today, not just in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom, establishing policies that are gonna be more welcoming for our BIPOC students, our undocumented students and, and other uh, students, older age students, like we've been talking about, uh, et cetera. In addition to that, right, what does additional funding could do, right? It could create anti-racist pedagogical practices and really sort of foster training around that for our faculty, for our adjunct faculty to really sort of be able to think about how we could, um, to use a term uh, that you used, uh, Liz, and I've been thinking quite a bit a lot as well, so I loved when you said this, is imagine, right? How could we imagine a classroom in the community college sector, right? That really centers the needs of the diverse learners that we spoke about uh, earlier today. The other thing that I think is really important also for us uh, to think about is how public policy decisions and those discourses are shaping the community college sector, All right? So what do I mean by that, right? We often have public policies that frame community colleges and its students from a deficit perspective, right? And that's really problematic. Right? So we have public policies that favor full-time student enrollment over part-time student enrollment, right? And how is it that that disproportionately impacts our community college learners, right? Financial aid is a great example of that uh, and, and how that's evidenced. In addition to that, right, think about remedial education, right? How remedial education is sort of placed oftentimes in some systems, right, like CUNY in New York City, it's placed on community colleges, right? How does that go ahead and help frame faculty's understanding of learners uh, in, in their classroom, right? And how could that perhaps seep into the way that our community college faculty and adjunct think about students and, and our learners if we're going ahead and framing them from a de deficit perspective? Those are things that I find to be particularly concerning uh, for sure. If, if I can come in on that, I, I think the, the greatest assumption that we have is when faculty show up, they're complete. Right? Because we're grading them on the mastery of their knowledge of the content, right? Not their ability to nurture and love and, and show compassion towards students. I think that's the biggest problem, right? And so as long as I can master my content, these, I don't have to look at maybe some microaggressions or macroaggressions that I project. Um, I don't have to look at my, my anti-racist, the way I build my syllabi, right? That may be a very exclusionary and this is like a hidden curriculum. I can look at the syllabi and realize like, oh, you don't value me as a person. 
to look at our implicit biases where I, I lean towards more one group of students than another. And so when students come out of these um, teacher education programs, the assumption, I think a lot of times, is that they, they, they know what they're doing in reference to this. When my dissertation examined um, this idea of alternate pathways of certification, and because Arizona, we have a, uh, we have a large gap uh, in the sense of uh, we need more teachers. And so we do these emergency certifications, right? So I can literally go into a school district and I even have a bachelor's degree, but they, if, they need some, if they need a warm body in this class, they will give an emergency certification. I haven't taken any pedagogical classes. They don't know if I even like students, <laughs> you know? Um, and then if I, if I have a bachelor's degree, I can go and get a, a teacher certification, but I never take an anti-racist class or a multicultural education class or a class on gender or anything of, of that nature to make me look at the mirror at myself or even a class on poverty, right? And so the policies dealing with finances, also the policies impact because the Arizona Department of Education determine what students are going to learn in their program. And so we can kind of start there. So um, I remember just when I was teaching high school, I would hear statements like, that student is a waste of flesh, right? I would hear students, uh, faculty say, oh, she's a Latina, she'll be pregnant by the time she graduates. Like, these are statements that I heard. And I'm like, well, why are you teaching? Um, I had a teacher, um, I'm gonna say this name right now, I'm gonna hold his name back <laughs> for this podcast. But he said that, Hit, um, that Mexicans um, are biologically, genetically designed to work in agriculture because they're short and they can pick cabbage and those types. I was just blown away. Now, this is a person who has a certification in teaching, but we need a certification in anti-racism. We need a certification in love and compassion. We need certification for social justice. And it's not mastery of content. That's that's what the issue is to me. So these policies, I agree, these policies also determine what these teachers or potential teachers or potential professors are going to learn that are going to be diffused to our students. And so if you look at them in a negative way, you can't you can't teach somebody in an equitable way if you look down upon them. Right. You know, and so and we have to be honest about ourselves and be like, yeah, I'm not all that. You know, I struggled too. I didn't know everything too. And just being honest. And I think that vulnerability is what makes you a better teacher. I'm going to just say one more thing because I know we're running short on time. Um, absolutely what my colleague Lewis said. Uh, I always think about when, in, when, when, when it comes to my educational experience, do I think back on that fantastic test that I took or that, you know, I don't. I think back to the teacher that took time to get to know me, that had an ethos of care, um, that uh, was invested in my, my, and how I did. <laughs> that's who I look, that, like, that's what I remember, right? And so at the end of the day, it's about humanity, <laughs> right? Um, and in higher education, I think, like we say, we privilege the knowledge, we privilege the credentials not always thinking about is that really in service to the humanity of all of us we would like to extend our gratitude to today's guests dr kenny neenhauser dr liz cantu and dr lewis brownlee for their valuable insight and powerful narratives that showcase what guides their work today's conversation reinforced the idea that community colleges play a huge role in the lives of families and there's potential to put the community back in community colleges to find the resources noted during our conversation, please visit cetl.uconn.edu and click on the banner for the HOT podcast. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, where we'll be talking about anti-racist teaching and indigeneity. Our guests for that episode include Dr. Sandy Grande, who is a professor of political science and Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Connecticut, and Dr. Chris Nelson, who is a professor of higher education at the University of Denver. We thank them in advance for the rich conversation and learning they will share with us. We would also like to thank the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Connecticut for all their support to make this podcast possible because it takes a village and it takes heart. <laughs>